the most common criticisms of Christians in America today is that we're judgmental. And unfortunately, I think there's some truth behind that criticism. And what we're going to talk about this morning is, on one hand, should we or shouldn't we be doing that? And then on the other hand, what do we do about it? And so where I'd like you to start thinking about it is there was a study done by a group called Barna. Barna Research is a Christian organization. So these are a bunch of Christians. And what they do is they study in and around what's happening in Christendom, what's happening in America, and how does that connect and relate with Christians. And Barna did a study not too long ago. And the purpose of the study was to determine, do Christians more reflect their attitudes and the actions of Jesus, or do they more reflect the attitudes and the actions of the Pharisees? Now, if you're a little bit newer to the faith, you may not know who the Pharisees are. So they are the group of religious elite. They are the religious leaders of Jesus's day. And he was constantly in conflict with them. And primarily it related in and around how they interpreted scripture and understood God's commands versus how Jesus was sharing that good news. And so we're gonna look at that study results there a little bit unnerving. Um, so the vertical axis is representing the, the uh, actions of Christians. And the horizontal axis is at, at, um, addressing the um, attitudes. Now, the lower left is more like Pharisees and the upper right is more like Jesus. So as you can see with that big 51% bubble, when Christians evaluated Christians' attitude and actions, it came to the conclusion that 51% of Christians are more like the Pharisees in both regards. Now, to the right of that, you'll see a 21%. That means that when evaluated, those Christians' attitudes aligned with Jesus, but their actions aligned more with the Pharisees. So that means if we do math, I'm sorry to make you do math on a Sunday, but if we do math, three out of four Christians' actions are more in alignment with Pharisees than they are with Jesus. That is a startling and not an exciting number. So let's talk about this idea because judgment or judgmentalism is a big part of what we're pushing back against. And where I would like to go scripturally to start is point to an interaction that Jesus has with the Pharisees in John chapter eight. And the, the scene of John chapter eight is really cool. So John is, or Jesus is in the temple and he's teaching to a large group of people and they're all surrounded him and he's teaching the good news, etc., etc. Inner stage right, the Pharisees, probably kind of a growl on their face, not very happy, aren't in a very good mood. And they're dragging this woman into the temple courts who has just been caught in the very act of adultery. And they probably push through the crowd and they get to the front and they want to challenge Jesus with what's going on with this woman. And so they say to him, hey, Moses' law, the law that God passed down to Moses says that anyone caught in the act of adultery ought to be executed. In fact, stoned is what they actually say because that's how they would have done the execution then. And so they say, what do you say, Jesus? Because they know they kind of got him between a proverbial rock and a hard spot. If he says, oh, ignore the law and don't stone her, well, he doesn't believe in the law of Moses, then how can he be of God? 
But on the other hand, with this crowd around him in the temple court, if he says, you know, kill her, like, that doesn't look very, uh, very wonderful either. So he's, he's in a tough spot. So he bends down and he's writing in the ground and they're pounding him. Come on, Jesus, tell us what you think. Tell us what you think. So finally he stands up and he says this. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote in the ground. And at this, those who heard the Pharisees began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus said to the Pharisees, to the religious elite, to the best of the best of the religious community in his day, he said, I don't have a problem with you judging this woman for her sin. But if you're going to do that, you need to be clean and pure first. And the Pharisees are smart enough to go, well, I'm probably, I probably got some stuff I got to work on. And so they leave one by one and Jesus is left with the woman. Now he doesn't condone her sin. He doesn't say, oh, it's okay what she did. But what he says to the religious elite is you must be pure of heart before you can cast that first stone. If you think of that Barna graph, 51% of believers, when evaluated by believers, fall into the Pharisees' camp. We want to stone her. She sinned. We want to get her. That's what we want to do in our deeds and actions. So the question that I've been kind of pondering throughout the weeks, last couple of weeks as I've been preparing is, why is it we're not supposed to judge? I mean, she was doing the wrong thing, right? Like, why aren't we supposed to judge her? And that's going to take us into Romans. And so Paul is the author of Romans. And Paul in Romans 1 is writing to and about what the Roman culture is like to these Christians in Rome. So he's writing to a bunch of believers about the audacity that he sees in and around Roman culture. And he begins, or he continues rather in verse 28. Furthermore, just as they, now the they he's talking about is the, the, the group of non-believers, those who have rejected God's commands. Just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what, they, what ought not be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they approve of those who practice them. And as I was pondering that kind of articulation of Roman culture by Paul, I realized like that, that's how a lot of us feel about America today. We feel like those that have rejected God have given themselves over to all that list and that myriad of, of sinful things. And I'm thinking, why wouldn't we want to judge that? Why, why wouldn't we want to cast judgment upon that? But then we read the very next verse, Romans 2, 1. You, so Paul has transitioned now. He's saying you being the believers, the religious, those are following God. You therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else for, what at, at, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Time out, Paul. 
The Christians do the same things as the non-believers? Come on now. I, I don't ever envy. I don't usually envy people. I, I don't. I don't, I don't boast. I'm, I'm not arrogant all the time. I mean, occasionally, maybe. Maybe once in a while. I mean, but, but I definitely don't slander. Um, I don't slander people very often. I don't talk bad about people. I don't, I don't deceive people a little bit. I don't exaggerate to make myself look better. That would never happen. Um, wow, well, maybe we actually, we actually do do the things that Paul is criticizing the non-believing culture to do. Maybe we, in fact, are guilty of doing the same things. What's interesting about that, though, is when we do that, we don't feel the same way about how we do it as we do about how others do it. Now, psychologists call that the fundamental attribution error. That's a, a psychology term, the fundamental attribution error. And what that means is this. When I look at someone else and they do something that is out of line with moral standards, I automatically assume the reason they did that is they lack character. They are doing that because they are morally inferior to me. When on the other hand, I look at myself and I do those same things, what I do is instead of attributing it to my character, I attribute it to my circumstances. I say, oh, well, there's a good reason why I did that or didn't do that. Give you a great example of that. Here's a bumper sticker. I bet Jesus would have used this turn signal. <laughs> now, imagine two cars traveling down 19th, okay? The front car has the bumper sticker and has the Christian in it, and the car behind has a non-believer in it. Now, as they're traveling down the road, right, the, non, or the, the first car is going along and loses track of where they are or probably praying too much, whatever. <laughs> Flash a quick hard right, but forget to turn on their signal. Now, as he turns on to, let's say, Maine, he's thinking in his head, I know that was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. But I was praying, and so, you know, it's okay. Or I was just distracted. It wasn't really that bad of a thing. And I almost never, ever don't use my turn signal the fundamental attribution error. I blame my circumstances on the reason why I did something I shouldn't have done. Now the car behind him, he doesn't offer that much grace, right? The car behind him is like, ha, idiot. I knew he was gonna do it as soon as I read that bumper sticker. And that's what happens because we assume when we're in the trailing position that it's a lack of character. And that is a little bit of why I think that Barna study reveals that 51%, that, that we have this fundamental attribution error where we justify the things that we do that are out of alignment with God's commands. And at the same time, but when we look at others, we go, lack of character. Now that's a very practical reason why we ought not judge, right? Paul's reason there is, don't judge because you do the same thing. That's That's silly. But there's a theological reason that he continues with here in verse two. He says, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. God's judgment is based on truth. He knows everything about it. He knows the full circumstances. He understands the why, what, when, where, and how. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? 
Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? Not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. He has just talked about all the awful things that the Roman culture is doing. And he's saying God's kindness is to bring you believer, you Christian, you church member to repentance. That caught me off guard. I was thinking, oh, well, you know, shouldn't it be, shouldn't it be to bring them to repentance? It didn't, I already repent. Isn't that how I became a Christian? But what it speaks to is the fact that as a believer, we are in a constant state of repentance. We should always be self-evaluating what's going on in my life. And how is that in alignment with the teachings of Jesus and what I am called to do? There's a, a proverb, Proverbs 16, 2, which says, all a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Can you believe 2,500 years ago that the writer of Proverbs knew about the fundamental attribution error? They understood in their world that we as people have a tendency to give ourselves a pass on our motivation and our sin, and we are much harder on others. I, I don't know what your motives are for whatever you did last week or yesterday or whatever it might be. I, I don't know the circumstances. I don't know what happened. I don't know why. So there's no way for me to effectively evaluate was that right, wrong, or indifferent. But God does know because he knows the truth. He knows the motives of your heart. There's a phrase that just says, you can't look up at God and down on people at the same time. If I spend my time judging and looking down on people and they ought to do this and they need to do this and why aren't they doing that? I've lost my focus. My focus is down on people, not up to him who created us all. Now there's some Bible scholars in the room that are sitting there going, hmm, there's some times we're supposed to judge. And you're absolutely right. There are some times that we are supposed to judge. But when we are to judge, there's some really significant parameters we need to pay attention to. Those are found in like Matthew 18, 2 Corinthians 5. One, we are to judge believer to believer. So as a follower of Jesus, I have some leverage or ability to judge another believer. But nowhere in the New Testament am I given free reign to start judging everyone else. Those people outside of the group of believers who haven't even, they haven't even committed to follow what Jesus is teaching. Why are we suggesting or expecting that they would follow what Jesus is teaching when they didn't even sign up for it? Second thing that's important, in addition to believer on believer, is that it's done with a certain posture and mindset. I'm not to judge people for my own benefit or to drive them down or to challenge them. My position ought to be, I want to raise them up. I want to help them be closer to Jesus. That My motivation to judge them is pure. And as we think about John 8, that's a bit of a challenge for us often. So at the end of the day, there's a very practical reason we ought not judge. One, which is we do the same stuff. If you don't believe you do the same stuff, you're fooling yourself. We all do the same stuff. And the second reason is theological because it's God's job, job to do that, not our job to do that. So we need to stop it. But if we stopped right there in this conversation, it would feel empty. I don't, I don't want to end on the negative, right? When you have little kids you don't tell kids, you're not supposed to at least, I did it all the time, but in theory, you don't tell kids, don't do that. Because then you've now hyper-focused them on doing what they're not supposed to do. What you're supposed to do, in other words, is offer, this is what you should be doing. And that's what I wanna do with the rest of our time together. I wanna talk about what should we do instead of judging everybody out there 
And to do that, I kind of want to play a little bit of a game, a little exercise here, if you'll bear with me. So I want you to think about a group of people, an individual, whoever you want to go to, that you have some level of judgment over, some maybe little bit of disdain for. Maybe it's a group of people that you just don't agree with the, what they think or how they operate or whatever it might be. To get your wheels turning, I'll give you a couple examples. Saturday is Cat Grizz. If you're a Bobcat fan, I'm going to encourage you to uh, think about your grizzly neighbors. If you're a grizzly who lives in Bozeman, kudos to you for being behind enemy lines. Um, but you might think about your Bobcats. Sometimes we have disdain or a bad feeling about certain professions. When I was growing up in high school and in college, there was a lot of rhetoric in and around disdain for lawyers, for example, that they were, you know, questionable character. And if you're a lawyer sitting in here right now, maybe you think about Dennis, right? People that we have disdain for or people that we have a problem with at some level. Maybe on a little more serious note, over the last three or four years, one thing I've, I've just noticed happening more and more in and around Bozeman, those of you that have been born and bred in Montana, you are Montana through and through. You have been in Montana forever, having disdain and frustration and everything in and around those that have moved here from other places. Those Californians, those Washingtonians, those Texans. I want you to think about those people. But you're not getting off if you moved here because I hear you too. You say, oh, those Montanans, they just, a little backwards, a little old school. They don't, they don't know this current way that things should be happening. So you could be thinking about that. Or what about on Tuesday? Tuesday, we had election. Uh, Every two years, we have national type elections. Every two years, 50% of the people are mad. Um, so if you're a Republican and you're a little upset about Tuesday and you just vote everybody who says are, no matter who they are or what they believe or what they say or what their character is, but you have disdain for Democrats, I'd like you to think about that a little bit and vice versa. There's many of you that have voted for Democrats and you vote DDDD no matter what. And you have disdain for those that vote for the red side of the aisle, I want you to think about those folks. It could be any group. You can think of a different group, but just to give you some ideas. And what we're going to go through is some commands from scripture, call them one another commands, that we are given throughout scripture. Now, I want to add one piece of context before we go to that. And that piece of context is this. Many of the one another commands come within the context of believer on believer. And there's no question that we ought to follow them as it relates to that. But I also think if we look at scripture, if we zoom out and we look at scripture in its totality, it would be naive to say that we should not follow them as it relates to those outside of the church. Take, for example, Matthew 5, where Jesus says, love your enemy, pray for your enemy. Or another passage that comes to mind is Luke 10, where Jesus shares the parable of the, of the good Samaritan where he's talking about who's your neighbor? Who's the person you're supposed to take care of? And he talks about the good Samaritan taking care of the person who's not of their faith background, not of their same mindset, not of their same economic status, but take care of your neighbor. So here's your assignment. You're thinking about that group, right? Lawyers, dentists, bobcats, whatever. And I want you to listen to these one another commands as we play them. Please roll the video. Be at peace with one another. 
Wash one another's feet. Love one another. 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 Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourself. Live in harmony with one another. Love one another. Stop passing judgment on one another. Accept one another just as Christ accepted you. Instruct one another. When you come together to eat, wait for each other. Have equal concern for each other. Serve one another in love. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, you will be destroyed by each other. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Carry each other's burdens. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Do not lie to each other. Bear with each other. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Teach one another. Admonish one another. Make your love increase and overflow for each other. Love each other. Encourage each other. Encourage each other. Build each other up. Encourage one another daily. Spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Encourage one another. Do not slander one another. Don't grumble against each other. Confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other. Love one another deeply. From the heart. Live in harmony with one another. Love each other deeply. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Love 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 one another. So the commands of Scripture say, instead of judging people, those are the things we're supposed to do. Be kind, be compassionate, pray for one another, honor each other, encourage each other, live in peace with each other, serve each other, love one another, love one another, love one another, love one another. That is so mushy. As Christians, we want it. That is that effective? Doesn't matter. Like that's, that's where we've kind of got to in our society right now. We sit here and we say, well, that's not effective. That's not going to get the job done. I'm not going to get people where they need to be if I do all those things. I don't think Jesus is asking your opinion. I think at the end of the day, the commands of scripture that he's given us, 55 one another's call us to wrap our arms around other people and love on them. Even those people we disagree with, even the people we 
just believe are flat out wrong, even the people that are full of sin and immorality, we're not called to judge on them. We are called to love them and take care of them. And where I think that leaves us is kind of where we're challenged right now. We spend far too much time evaluating everybody else's responses to everything and far too little time looking at myself and saying, what is it that I need to change to be more like Jesus? Part of the reasons that Christians, 51% are aligned with the Pharisees is because of these things. They're, they're not doing the one another things that we ought to be doing in and around our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our society, and everywhere else. And it, it speaks to a bigger challenge that I think began to really rise itself up in the church a few decades ago, two or three decades ago. And it, and it deals with this question. What is the role of the Christian in a pluralistic society? What is the role of the church in a pluralistic society that we find ourselves living in? Are we to be the morality police? Are we to run around and tell people to stop doing that and don't do that and don't do this and start doing that? Is that what the role of the church is in our society? Because I will tell you who was really, really good at that, the Pharisees. They were really, really good at that. Or is the role of the Christian in our society, is the role of the church in our society to walk in a manner that we become more like Jesus, that we apply the one another's to our lives, that we stand before the Lord with our hands open and our knees bent and say, Father God, what is it in my life that is misaligned with your word, with your commands? How can I be more like you? And that is what the New Testament calls us to. That's what it calls the church to. A good example of that is in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, I urge you then, first of all, that petitions and prayers, intercessions and thanksgiving may be made for only Christians. Oh no, it says all people. All people? Like what? Are, even the people I disagree with, the people I don't like, the people who have wronged me, the people who are full of sin. Yeah, all people. Yeah, that's who you're supposed to be praying for. That's who you're supposed to be interceding for. For all kings and those in authority that we that we as Christians, that we may live a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and holiness. So you're telling me that the objective here is that I am to live a quiet and peaceful life? That does not fit very well when I'm casting stones at that group I don't like. You're telling me my job description is to do self-evaluation on myself with the help of the Holy Spirit that I might change my heart, mind, and attitudes, that my attitudes and actions are to align with Jesus and not with the Pharisees? Yeah, that's what I'm telling you. And what does Paul say about that? This is good and it pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Think about it. The best master plan of evangelism is not what I say. It's not casting the stones. It's not fixing everybody. The best way for me to share the gospel is to look inward and change my heart, change my actions, change my mindset. That when that happens, 
people will come to a knowledge of the truth, that they will learn the truth because I live and walk and do things differently. And you might be saying again, well, I don't know if that'll work. I don't know if that's effective. One, effective isn't the point or efficient isn't the point. The point is to be obedient. But let me give you some some examples of what that looked like. John chapter 13, Jesus has got his boys, the 12 disciples, last supper. They're in the upper room. They eat the meal. After they finish the meal, Jesus begins to wash Peter's feet. And as he finishes washing Peter's feet, he probably moved to John next. And after John, he probably moved to James. And he just kept going down the line. And you know who he got to? Judas. Do you know what Judas was about to do? He was going to finish getting his feet washed walk to the door, put on his sandals and go betray Jesus. Jesus knew that. And yet the way in which he handled that was to wash his feet. So then that night continues. We're now minutes from Jesus's arrest. He and the disciples are in the garden of Gethsemane. They finished praying. Jesus finished praying. And here comes up the hill, the soldiers that are about to arrest him led by Judas. And Judas walks up to Jesus. He gives him that famous kiss on the cheek to betray him. And what does Jesus call Judas? Jerk, traitor, idiot, evil. Calls him friend. That that doesn't make any sense. Friend? The man who is betraying him at the moment of betrayal, Jesus calls friend. Think about the early church. Wow. They lived in a messed up culture. You know what Roman culture was like? Infanticide, morally acceptable. If you have a child and you don't want him, walk him into the woods, set him down, let the wolves eat him. Not, not immoral, not a problem. It's all good. Sexual immorality, no problem. Everything goes. No rules whatsoever. And here's this little group of Christians. They got no power, no influence, no authority. They have nothing. And they're taking care of the poor. They're saving the children in the woods. They are living this sexual life that has morality and in accordance with what God has for them. They have no influence. What happened? You happened. You would be sitting here had they not done that. They lived out Jesus, his attitudes and his actions. And it changed the Roman world, which changed Western culture, which became what we are today. We've gotten away from that. A lot of times we think the way we're going to have influence is by power and authority. We just had an election. Oh, We've got to make sure we get the right people. And if we don't get the right people in office, America is going to go to hell in a handbasket. I believe you absolutely should vote your civic duty. I am in no way, shape, or form pulling away from that. You absolutely need to be involved in that. But if you believe that to be the solution to our problems, I've got news for you. Do you know where the three fastest growing churches are in the world? Three fastest countries with the fastest growing Christian populations worldwide. China, Iraq, Iran. 
How's that make any sense? Those Christians have no authority, no power, no influence. What's their influence? They changed who they are inside. They walk around every day and they reflect Jesus and people are like, that's weird. Maybe I'll check that out. That's what 2 Timothy says is gonna happen. When we, when we do the work, when we as individuals do the hard work that it takes to be more in conforming with Jesus and what he's about, the world is impacted by that. So our job then is to do that ruthlessly. We have to day by day, week by week, month by month, we, we've got to do that hard work. You've got to ask those hard questions. Father God, Spirit, reveal to me the things where I'm misaligned, where I'm not loving one another, serving one another, praying for one another, being kind and compassionate to one another. Where are those places in my life that I need to do that? I want to go back to something Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount as we talk about the idea of judging, just in case there's anyone who's like, I don't know if he's really on this or not. Matthew 7, verse 1, Jesus speaking, do not judge, fairly clear, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be used to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. I've got a challenge for you. This challenge is something I want you to do today. Not next week, not next month. I want you to do this today. I'm just asking that you would do this today. Here's what it is. When, when you go home, Find a quiet place in your home with, without electronics, without your phone and everything else, and just sit down and do exactly what we're talking about. Sit before God and just say, Lord, where are the areas of my life that I am misaligned with loving people the way that you've called me to love them, with, with where, I, where I don't serve people the way you call me to serve them, where I have animosity or disdain for people that you have created and you love and you died for that sin that they're committing that I'm so upset about. Point those things out in my life and then seek God's direction and how to handle that. Do you need to seek forgiveness? Do you need to honor that person in some way? Do you need to change your media ingestion? Do you need to do something that will allow you to not be 51%? that will allow you to align your attitudes and your actions with those of Jesus and avoid being like a Pharisee. I didn't point it out when I had the graph up, but if you notice in the upper right, 14% of those Christians, when studied by Christians in the Barna study, had their attitudes and actions aligned with Jesus. 14%, that's about one in every eight. It's not ideal. May we be a church and a group of people that individually and collectively do the hard work to look at ourselves, our life, our attitudes, our actions, and get them in alignment with Jesus as we go forward. Will you pray with me? Father God, I am I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for your teachings, but they don't always align with what I want. They're hard. They require me 
to not do things that I want to do. They require me to look at my own heart and my own mind and realize that I don't measure up. And Lord, I know I can't do it on my own. I know it is impossible, literally impossible for me to fulfill the one another commands that you have laid before me. But I do know it's possible through you. I know that if you work in me and my brothers and my sisters, that we can become into alignment with your commands and what scripture has taught us to. Lord, I pray that you would help us to do that. I pray that you would give us an urgency and a heart that would look to follow your commands and not judge, to look at our heart and to follow your commands and to love one another and be at peace with another and everything else you've said. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for engaging with this content. If it was encouraging to you, we'd love for you to leave a review. Hit that subscribe button and share this content with others. We'd also love to connect with you. The best place to do that is journeyweb.net. Don't forget to follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search Journey Church Bozeman and you'll find us there. If you'd like to give to our ministry, you can do that now at journeyweb.net slash give. Once again, thanks for engaging with Journey Church.